Like Jen said earlier, my name is Liza. I'm on the Women's Shepherding team at the South End site. And I'm also on staff at Hope. So if you've ever emailed into our church, it's very likely you've been emailing with me. Um, I'm really excited to be with y'all this morning. I am normally a nighttime group girl, so it's a gift to be with y'all this morning. And for those of y'all that are listening on the podcast, um, I know it's a lot to give up a night to pursue Jesus and community. So thank y'all for doing it. And thank y'all for being here this morning. Um, Today, we're going to continue in our study on the Sermon on the Mount by looking at our next beatitude and the next portion of Jesus' teaching But as we get started, we're going to start off with our Lectio Divina, get a little settled. We'll take a minute just to be quiet, to figure out how you're coming in, Um, just to pay attention to yourself, where you are, what you're feeling. So I'll give us a minute of silence to do that, to settle in, and then I will read our passage for us this morning. So let's take a minute just to be silent. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and just all the things you've been teaching us about flourishing as we look at um, the Sermon on the Mount together. I thank you for all the women in this room and those who are meeting together at night. I really do pray that um, your words this morning would be real to us, that you would help us to believe what's true about ourselves and about you, and that you would speak to us in a new way through this passage. Um, And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read the passage for us for the first time. As we go through it the first time, I just want y'all to think about a word or a phrase that stands out to y'all as I read through this passage. Um, Something the Holy Spirit might be drawing your attention towards, but just a word or a phrase that stands out and y'all can write it down. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) 
Okay, as I read the passage a second time, I want y'all to think about what comes to mind when you hear the word enemy. Who is someone that might be difficult for you to love? And how do you think Jesus views this person and views you in light of this passage? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, I'm going to read through the passage one last time, and this time I want you to think about something in this passage that might be comforting to you or something that might be challenging to you. What do you feel like the Spirit is stirring as you think about something in this passage that's either comforting or challenging? (laughs) Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect.
Okay, well, thank y'all for doing that with us this morning. I hope it was a helpful way to just kind of get our bearings as we start talking about this passage together. But we have a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right in um, and get started by looking at our beatitude for this week. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I don't know about y'all, but when I think about the word meek, I feel like it has a lot of connotations that don't necessarily feel positive. I think of someone who's meek as someone who might be really quiet or timid, maybe a little mousy or something like that. But other translations of this passage use the word humble, which I think is super important and just a helpful way to think about that word. Um, But I want to take a look at what meekness actually is according to the bible this phrase actually was likely familiar to some of jesus's followers because it is found pretty much identically in one of the psalms psalm 37 11 says but the meek or those who hope in the lord is another translation but the meek will inherit the land which is super comparable obviously to what we're hearing today um i'm not going to read all of psalm 37 to you But kind of leading up to verse 11, it describes what this person is like and the characteristics of this meek person. So here are a few of the characteristics that are listed in Psalm 37. They trust the Lord. They delight in the Lord. They don't worry when wicked schemes are carried out. They refrain from anger and they hope in the Lord. So in our meekness, in our humility, what we're really looking at here is trusting Jesus, believing that he knows what he's doing, not worrying or being anxious when things don't go the way we thought they would go, um, but really giving ourselves over to Jesus and to his plans. Chuck DeGroat in his book, Leaving Egypt, um, kind of says that the Greek word for meek in this passage is comparable to the phrase you would use when you're describing a horse being broken. You got any Yellowstone fans out there? That's like all I could think of when I was like imagining a horse being broken. Um, but when you think about that, a wild horse can't be ridden. It's dangerous both to its master and to itself. Its strength is super unpredictable. But a broken horse, on the other hand, is subject to its master. It hasn't lost its strength. Um, which is really important. Its strength is still there, but it's just refocused and repurposed towards its master's will and its master's plans. Um, And thinking about that, even in a couple weeks with the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. And so even just the phrasing there of, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, which is so different than my own heart so often, because I want my kingdom to come and my will to be done. Um, But as we continue to build on the Beatitudes that we've been looking at each week, meekness comes after we have become poor in spirit, after we've mourned our sin, right? The Beatitudes that we've talked about the last two weeks. So those are the kind of things that lead up to the type of humility that we're going to be talking about today. Um, So part of our meekness, part of our humility, playing out here in the kingdom that Jesus is inviting us to, this flourishing that we keep talking about, is trusting and believing that God's plan is better than mine, which is obviously really hard. (laughs) Um, But along with that, just thinking about, too, I think a good question to sit with and wrestle with is how can we use our strengths to be kind of redirected towards God's will and God's plans instead of our own? Um, I have enjoyed sitting with that the last couple weeks. 
So in our meekness, in our humility, as we're kind of reorienting ourselves towards trusting and believing in Jesus's will and Jesus's plan, the promise we receive with this beatitude is that we will inherit the earth. So what does that mean? Are we actually going to inherit the earth one day? Yes, the Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. But what does that inheritance mean here and now? How does it affect the kingdom of God coming to bear in our lives today? If we are in Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit, which Ephesians 1 calls the guarantee of our inheritance until we obtain possession of it. We even talked about that a little bit on the women's retreat this weekend, if y'all were there. But we have inherited the Holy Spirit, not only as a guarantee of our inheritance to come, but we have already received him here and now as our help for living out the kingdom of God in this present reality. So the things we're going to talk about today, the rest of the passages, are pretty tall orders. They're not things we're really going to be able to do in and of ourselves. But because we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, we have a helper. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. And Luke 12.32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give us the kingdom later, but also to give us the kingdom here and now as we think about flourishing in the kingdom. So in our meekness, in our humility, as we're being reoriented to the Father's will, we have been given the Spirit to help us bring the kingdom to bear here and now in our present reality. So what is it that we need the Spirit's help to do? We're going to look at two different passages today from Jesus's teaching. Um, The first one I did not read during the Lectio, so I'm going to read that for us now, but it's verses 38 through 42 if you want to follow along. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So I know Jen talked about this a little last week, but Jesus is starting off here by saying, you have heard it said. He's addressing this way that people have heard that they're used to thinking about how they're supposed to live, um, what they have heard from the Old Testament. But he then says, but I say. So he's offering this new kingdom way to live, this upside down kingdom that kind of flips everything on its head. That's what Jesus is inviting us to for flourishing. So let's look first at what he's kind of talking about the old way, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Why were these rules set in place in the Old Testament? Really, they were set in place during the time of the judges in the Old Testament to keep people from over-retaliating, to keep a sense of justice between the people. Even last week, as Jen was kind of talking about, you know, we all have that anger that goes on along under the surface that kind of can cause us to do crazy things sometimes. Um, So basically to keep the justice between the people, what, what they were trying to avoid was someone being like, oh, you stole my livestock? Well, I'm going to come burn your entire house down in retribution. Um, So they put an eye for an eye in place to kind of keep things even and equal back then. But Jesus, in his new kingdom way, is saying, don't just do things to get even. Let's get rid of the transactional nature and instead live as a part of the upside-down kingdom where we're extending grace to people and showing mercy to them. 
The place of flourishing is not in seeking our own justice, but it's in trusting the Father's good provision for you. So turn the other cheek. Don't just go one mile with someone, go two miles with them. Don't give up just your shirt, but give them your coat as well. We're invited into not just making things even, but extending flourishing to other people as we trust God's provision for us. As we trust that our abundant Father has given us enough resources, both physically and emotionally, that we can give things away. The meek person does not need a spirit of retaliation to defend herself because she believes that she has already inherited the earth. She has everything she needs. We can do more than what's asked or required of us in our humility, in our meekness. We can seek the flourishing of other people, which I do want to talk about the turn your other cheek part for a second. I think a lot of people read that and think of it as like, oh, I'm supposed to let people walk all over me or just let them do whatever they want. Um, But I want you to hear me say that this is not a justification for abuse of any kind. A cheek slapping here is kind of a metaphorical (coughs) insult, a character assault. It's something that someone says to wound you, um, but it's not a physical act of violence. It's something that someone would do to insult you with their words. So if this happens, if our character is assaulted, Do we trust our identity in Jesus enough to not feel the need to defend ourselves or to retaliate towards other people? Instead, can we turn the other cheek? Can we give a fresh start to the relationship? I listened to um, a sermon that Tim Keller was doing on this, and I love the way he phrased it. He was kind of saying, you know, when someone slaps you on the cheek, your opportunity is to turn the other cheek, offer a fresh start to the relationship, and give them a chance to kiss you on the cheek instead of hit you. Um, which is obviously super hard and super risky because there is a chance that they could just slap you again. You don't know what's going to happen. But do we trust the loving kindness of our Father enough that we, in humility, can extend grace to other people as we think about our relationships with them and people who have wounded us? Um, So in all these examples that Jesus is giving us, he is saying, in my new kingdom, you have enough resources for me that you don't have to live with a scarcity mentality. You don't have to hoard. You don't have to do the bare minimum. You don't have to have your own back physically or emotionally, but you can give freely. We can give abundantly. We can risk our reputation and our security because we have been given everything we need. We have inherited the earth. Um, Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So I want us to think about that too, maybe later with our tables. What would that look like for us to interact with people not from a mentality of scarcity or transactional nature, but out of the abundant goodness and kindness that the Lord has shown us? Jesus is saying, I want you to do justice, but I also want you to love kindness. We have this new kingdom way, which leads us to the last portion of our passage, talking about loving our enemies and doing kindness to them, this new kingdom way that we keep talking about. So I read this um, earlier in the Lectio, but I'll read it one more time for us. This is verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So one of the questions I asked y'all to think about in the Lectio as we enter into this passage is, who are your enemies? It could be someone you're in a fight with. Some days it could feel like your kids, your spouse, your boss, another family member, a friend who's feeling particularly hard for you this season. Um, I am a nine on the Enneagram, which is called the Peacemaker, which basically means I avoid conflict and having enemies at all costs. So as I was sitting in this passage, I really was having to ask Jesus I need you to show me who my enemies are because the thought of having enemies is like, ugh, so cringe to me. Um, But, and I think part of that is because the word enemy just feels kind of harsh and intense. Like, I can be frustrated with someone but not feel like they're my enemy. So as I was kind of sitting in it, I was thinking instead, okay, let me think instead about who is it hard for me to love when it says love your enemies. Um, So as I was kind of sitting in that, to know what love is, I went to 1 Corinthians 13, which is a passage that a lot of us are probably familiar with. You've probably heard it read at weddings or other things like that. Um, But here is how this passage describes love. I'm going to read it to you all really quickly. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So as I'm thinking about my enemies, as I'm thinking about people who might feel hard for me to love, I kind of started going through that list of qualities and thinking, okay, Liza is patient. Liza is kind. Liza does not envy. And as I was kind of going through those, man, the, the first one that really knocked me on my feet was Liza does not envy because that is so, so hard for me. I think particularly in my current life stage, I'm in a stage of life that I did not think I was going to be in at this point. I was not expecting to be in my 30s and still single. So it is really easy for me to envy people who are married, people who are having babies, Even on the women's retreat this past weekend, we were kind of talking about the culture of South Charlotte and just envying, you know, people whose houses feel more beautiful than mine or people whose clothes are cuter than mine or things like that. Um, But my envious heart, I think, makes it really hard to love people sometimes because I am spending so much time being envious of the things that they have. Um, The other one that really hit me pretty hard was love doesn't insist on its own way. And you can ask anyone in my family. I want things to go my way all the time. Um, But even thinking about, too, in the context of God, just like the amount of times I have been angry with him for his will not being in alignment with mine, for things not going my own way. Um, Even thinking about the horse example with the meekness and breaking a horse, like when he's trying to direct me into alignment with his will and I am just bucking and kicking and rearing my head and trying to resist because I want my own way. I want my kingdom to come, not his. Um, So I kind of came to the conclusion that a lot of times my enemies feel like people who get in the way of me getting what I want or the type of life that I want to live. Um, And because of that, if I'm being totally honest, 
when I was sitting in this passage, I felt like the spirit just kind of kept whispering to me like, okay, be honest about who you really are hostile towards a lot of times. And so I, I, as I was trying to be honest with myself, I'm like, man, I am hostile towards God a lot of times. I think I believe the lie. I know I believe the lie a lot of times that God is my enemy, um, that he's getting in the way of me living the life I want to live or giving me the things that I want. So what do I do with that when I'm believing the lie that God is my enemy? because he's not working life out the way that I wanted it to work out. And it feels like he's coming at me with hard thing after hard thing. Um, what do I do with that? Well, the reality is I actually was once God's enemy in my sinful nature. Um, all of us were, we were God's enemies. And what did he do when we were his enemies? He loved us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So y'all, God loved us enough that while we were his enemies, he loved us enough that he didn't just reconcile us, but he brought us in as his children from enemies to children. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called called children of God. And that is what we are. And as people who have been brought in as children, we have the freedom to go to our dad with our angers, with our frustrations, with our fears and our anxieties. When our, yeah, just our general anger, when our will does not line up with his, when they feel so different. Jen talked last week about lamenting and just bringing all of that to Jesus. And that is something we have the freedom to do as his children. Um, You know, when your kid is like mad at you, I don't have kids, so I don't know this, but I would imagine if your kid is mad at you, you would much rather them come talk to you about it, even in their anger, than to just like totally shut you out and ignore you and not talk to you. So when I go to God with these big feelings, when I'm having a hard time understanding or accepting or bending to his will, how does he react towards me? What is his face towards me as I'm having a hard time aligning with his will? Um, Well, if we believe what 1 John 4 says, that God is love, in times when it feels like he's my enemy, even though he's not, he's a loving father, but when it feels like that, when I'm believing the lie that Jesus is my enemy, how does he treat me? Well, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and put Jesus' name in all of those characteristics, um, then that is what it looks like. And I do want to say, this is probably going to feel super cliche, but these are things that I truly have experienced from God after deep seasons of wrestling with him and, you know, just being angry with him. And it, some of y'all might still be in those seasons of wrestling where it's going to feel hard to believe that, God is these characteristics of First Corinthians 13. And if that is the case, I would say keep going. Keep wrestling. Ask the Spirit to give you grace to keep wrestling with him. Um, and I really do hope that Jesus meets y'all with these characteristics as you continue to do that. But when I'm having a hard time believing that Jesus is, or when I'm believing the lie that Jesus is my enemy, um, how does he treat me? How does he respond to me? Well, 
he is patient. He is so patient with me in times when I am questioning him, when I'm continuing to get frustrated, or when I am slapping him across the cheek over and over again with insults and with accusations. He turns his cheek and has new mercy for me each time. Um, he is kind. He is kind to me. He draws me in. He uses his spirit to remind me of truths that I need help remembering. And he gives me the grace to believe them. He bears things when they're too heavy for me to bear. He endures all things. He has all these characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13. That is how he acts towards us um, in his great love for us. And these are things that I think is Helpful to remember, too, when we're thinking about the example of the horse being broken, our strength isn't being redirected towards a harsh master. It's being redirected towards a loving father. We're coming under the care of a father who really loves us so much that he brought us from enemies to children. Um, And when I have experienced that kind of love for my father, who's brought me in as his child, then we are freed up to treat others the same way, too. Verse 45 says, love your enemies so that you will be children of your father. I think that verse can feel a little confusing sometimes because we know that Christianity isn't transactional. We don't have to love our enemies in order to become part of the family, but we love our enemies to show that we're part of the family because we're in the family. We exhibit these characteristics. Flourishing here in the kingdom looks like exhibiting the same traits as our brother Jesus, loving our enemies because we have the inheritance of his spirit inside of us, enabling us to do this, enabling us to love people that are hard for us, that we envy, that test our patience, that are rude to us, all the things, because what is the very first fruit of the spirit? If we look at Galatians 5 that lists all the fruits of the spirit that we have received with our inheritance of the spirit, the very first one on the list is love. So we have the ability to do that, to love our enemies because Jesus loved us when we were his enemies and brought us in as his children and gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Um, We can love our enemies by trusting the Spirit and by remembering the great love that Jesus has for us. So I want to close by looking at this last verse. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is a little intimidating, obviously. Um, But when you look at the original language of that word, really a better interpretation for perfect would be whole or complete. What Jesus is asking of us here is not perfection, but to be singular in nature, not one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside, but a wholehearted orientation towards God. We want to be whole-natured people who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek and humble. Those are the things that put us in alignment with God's will and his kingdom here on earth. And that's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is inviting us to, to a wholeness, a completeness, a harmony with our Heavenly Father that reflects his image, an invitation to enter and participate in his kingdom, both to come and his kingdom here and now. So I want to kind of wrap up by using Pennington's rephrasing of the Beatitudes that we've been looking at each week. So for this one, we have flourishing are those who are humble because they will inherit the world. And y'all, we can flourish in God's new kingdom way as people whose meekness, whose humility makes them wholly and completely aligned with the work that the Father is doing, both in us and around us. 
the work he's inviting us to as people who've been brought from enemies to dearly love children who imitate their father with the help of the spirit, who's a guarantee of our inheritance to come. And I really do hope we're able to rest and live in that this week. So let me pray for us. Um, Lord, thank you so much just for the gift of your word again and for the reminder that you loved us so deeply while we were your enemies. I do pray that through the help of the spirit, that would enable us to love our enemies or love the people who feel hard for us. Um, Would you help us to rest in the truth that we are your children, that we can come to you with our anger and our frustration. um, And that would you help us to believe that you're going to meet us there with kindness and with patience and with so many other things, um, exactly what we need for this day. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.